is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Thursday, March 16, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. Taylor Schwenk, Sarah Abbott, Bruce Baldwin are working in Bristol. I'm Buster Olney. I'm in Clearwater, headed to Orioles camp in Sarasota later today. Guys, there's one word that can sum up the mood right now, and that is bummer. Wow. It feels like the sport's going through a depression this morning. Yeah, that was a really uh, fun atmosphere between the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, of course, coming out on top and, you know, a couple exciting plays and gets down to the celebration, big win, and uh, just goes sideways. I, you hate when you see an injury during a celebration for Edwin Diaz. That's, that's a tough one. Yeah, it, uh, Sarah, I just texting back and forth with people all this morning about how much it stinks. Everyone's like, poor kid, poor guy. Uh, you know, some people relating to what the, you know, the Mets are going to be dealing with going forward. Yeah, it's just devastating to see a player get hurt in general, but especially the way he got hurt is just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And we're going to be having a lot of conversation this morning about how what happened last night might affect the WBC going forward. To, to back it up a little bit, it was a pivotal game between the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico, an elimination game. Puerto Rico led 4-0, and then this happened. Dominican Republic, they need to get it going now because Puerto Rico has jumped ahead on Soto. Scotty's one to center field, and deep. It is gone! And my goodness, way out of here. Santo Domingo, Juan Soto's here. What an answer. Sarah Lang's favorite player hitting a monster home run that just seemed to keep going and going and going, landing straight away center field about three quarters of the way up uh, toward the batter's eye. Now, in the top of the fifth inning, Francisco Lindor was at the plate, got a little league home run. Lindor had the base hit through gas on the fire in that third inning. Got the second run home. Now he lights this one to center field, and that's another hit for Lindor. to second, heading for third. We'll see if they send him. And they are going to send him. The ball's bobbled. Lindor all the way home. Yeah, you could see as the ball was headed out to center field, Julio Rodriguez uh, playing that position last night for the Dominican Republic. was kind of hesitating, and when it landed, Lindor knew right away he had a chance for an inside-the-park home run. And the effort that he ran the bases, boy, it, it just told you so much about the passion that the players had for this event, the excitement when he slides head first across home plate. Puerto Rico carried a 5-2 to two lead into the ninth inning. All the players excited about this uh, opportunity to move past the Dominican Republic. 3-2. That is straight three called. Hopefully Edwin Diaz isn't really hurt. That would be the only thing that could put a damper on a great night for baseball. And a great win for Puerto Rico. Gosh, you can only hope it's not as bad as it looks based on those faces. Can't see yet. Right knee? Right knee. And everybody knew right away Diaz must have said something went really wrong. So the Dominican players, they're all top step right now, fearing for him and feeling for him as well. Oh, no. 
wheelchair to assist him. That was his brother. Crying. Well, we can only hope. Yeah, we can only hope. The Mets announced late last night that Diaz will undergo some imaging. They'll have a final word on the nature of his injury later today. But look, it looked absolutely devastating, like the sort of injury that's going to keep him out for a long time. Uh, at, after he got that strikeout, the players from Puerto Rico were celebrating together. They're kind of jumping up collectively in a group, and Diaz crumpled to the ground. And there was a reference there to his brother, uh, crying, he was bawling his eyes out. Players of the Dominican Republic standing at the top of the dugout, watching everyone concerned for Edwin Diaz, the best reliever in baseball, who apparently is out indefinitely. And as uh, Anthony DeComo of MLB.com noted on Twitter last night, in less than a week, the Mets have taken a serious bullpen hit, losing Brooks Raley to a hamstring strain. Uh, Bryce uh, Montez de Oca to a stress reaction in his elbow, Sam Coonrad to a lat strain, and now Edwin Diaz to a knee injury. Only Raley seems likely to be there on opening day. He's the best reliever in baseball. He's the highest paid reliever in baseball, which is why this morning, all kinds of conversation about the impact of this on the WBC. So we saw Freddie Freeman leave uh, Team Canada's game the other day with a hamstring issue. The Dodgers are saying that Freeman should be okay for the Dodgers opener, so they don't think that his injury was that serious. In the Mets exhibition game, hours before the Diaz injury, Justin Verlander was on the mound, and he was terrific. Here's the one-two pitch. Swung on and missed. Four strikeouts so far for Justin Verlander through the opening seven batters. And in Tampa, the Yankees played the Phillies. Anthony Volpe, who's going for that starting shortstop job at the beginning of the regular season, he made a nice play. And it's hard hit right off of Severino's leg. Volpe will try to field it and throw, and they got him. They'll have to check on Severino and see where that hit him in the leg. Good reaction by Volpe. That sound from the Yes Network. Yeah, Severino was okay. Volpe made another nice play. A lot of conversation in the Yankees camp where I was yesterday about Volpe and his chances for making the team. And we'll get into that. We'll hear from uh, their owner, Hal Steinbrenner, in just a bit. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, I, I got an alert here. Sarah Abbott is going to be up quite late this evening. Um, I'm going to Columbus, Ohio to watch some NCAA tournament games. But tonight and tomorrow night, Sarah will be up with Reese Davis and Pete Thamel for some rapid reaction pods following the uh, first rounds of the NCAA tournament. So I think about 11 o'clock, Sarah, uh, you'll be yeah. hopping on with the boys and you know doing a 15 to 25 minute pod and, and putting it out there. Are you excited for that? I'm super excited. Last time we did it, it was a ton of fun. So everyone, check it out and listen wherever you're listening to this podcast. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, 
Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one and done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash buster. Just go to indeed.com slash buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Jeff Passan covers baseball for ESPN, and that meant last night writing the story that's on ESPN.com about this terrible injury, Jeff, to Edwin Diaz, which was just heartbreaking. You know, all uh, morning this morning, I've been exchanging texts, talking with uh, folks around baseball. They're devastated. Uh, tell me about the scene last night. They should be devastated, Buster, because this was one of those moments that was supposed to be a celebration. Uh, a culmination, really. The Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico have a rivalry that goes back decades, long predating the World Baseball Classic. And in the WBC, Puerto Rico had beaten the DR in 2006. They had beaten the DR in 2017. They had lost three times uh, back in 2013 when the DR won the entire tournament. And I had talked with Edwin Diaz after the perfect game uh, against Israel a couple days earlier, and he said, essentially, this is going to be like game seven of the World Series. That's what the atmosphere is going to be like. That's what the feeling is going to be like. And to be there in Miami, which feels like the perfect city for those two teams to be facing off and for the game to have had that electricity and to have had that atmosphere and to have been crisply played and interesting and had moments, moments that, that were going to stand out. And for all of that to be washed away in one moment where we still really don't have a clear sense of what happened, it was just sad. I think that's what the, the prevailing feeling was afterward for everybody. It was just sadness because Edwin Diaz is widely regarded as a very good guy and somebody who people really like a lot and respect. And uh, they, they understand how hard he works and how good he is. And to lose all of that in a moment, uh, a, a moment that was nobody's fault, was a complete freak accident 
uh, it's just so unfortunate. And uh, I, I think beyond the the short and long term damage it does to Diaz, the unfortunate part is that uh, the WBC is going to get blamed for this. And uh, these are the sorts of things that have long term consequences, potentially, where guys might say, you know what, I don't want to play in this because my my team, my team that pays me is more important. There's no doubt about that. And we'll get to that in a moment. I'm curious about when, as you're watching this play out, when did you realize there was a problem? Uh, Alden Gonzalez, uh, I was sitting right next to him and Alden has like an eagle eye for this sort of thing. And Alden is, you. It, here's, here's a quick tip for listeners. Here's how you know somebody covered a beat for a long time. They have binoculars in the press box. And Alden immediately, he's like, somebody's down. And he immediately grabbed his binoculars and said, oh, God, I think it's Edwin Diaz. And at that point, I had, just to pull back the curtain a little more, I had just filed the buzzer story. And and this story was full of, wow, what an exciting game, what intense atmosphere, what what a cool thing this was and you want to talk about having to rewrite a story um you know it, like at that moment every reporter understands you go into okay let's figure out what the hell happened mode let's talk with as many people as we can and so the story that i filed at the end of the game and the story that i went downstairs and reported um the the voices and the tone of the people with whom we spoke compared to the expectations. I mean, Kike Hernandez came into the press conference room, Buster, and his eyes were red and there were still tears when he was talking about Edwin Diaz and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, I I couldn't have ever imagined beating the Dominican Republic in a win or go home game and feeling the way that I feel. And immediately, I'm sure that uh, yeah, your memory went uh, at the same place mine did, which was Kendrick Morales. Yep, <laughs> that's, that's exactly what it was. We talked about that. Uh, we talked about that downstairs. And uh, listen, that's the natural place to gravitate toward, right? And and when it did, when, when I was talking with Alden about it and uh, Marley Rivera about it downstairs, I was like, yeah, this this sort of completely freak thing happens every 10 years or so. And my only hope in this situation is that the the same for those who don't remember, like Kentris Morales was really, really good, like like ascending when he got hurt and was just never the same after that. And, uh, you know, the the hope is that the same sort of fate does not befall Edwin Diaz because what Edwin Diaz did in that ninth inning is so emblematic of who Edwin Diaz is right now. He went in there against Catel Marte, Gene Segura, and Teoscar Hernandez, and over the course of 21 pitches, absolutely carved up three very good major league hitters. Like this, this isn't the the bottom of some other lineup. This is the seven, eight, nine for the Dominican Republic team that supposedly had the best lineup ever. 
And and to see him do that to to throw these hundred mile per hour peas and the slider that just frisbees uh, more than any in baseball right now, it, it was Edwin Diaz at his best, and then Edwin Diaz unfortunately at his worst. And for those who don't remember Kendrick Morales and what happened uh, at the time that this injury took place, he was, I think you agree with me, Jeff, he's one of the 10 best hitters in baseball. Yep. As you say, he was ascending. He hits a walk-off home run. And I believe, I my memory says it was a grand slam. Uh, he hits a walk-off home run. And as he's rounding third base, all his teammates are gathered at home plate. And he, is, he gets closer to home plate. He jumps in the air. And then as he comes down, his ankle... Uh, basically uh, dissolves and he he look he turned out to have a terrific career he played a long time he did well but the trajectory of what uh, the expectation of what he's going to be after that uh you know versus what he became it, it was never the same and it was it changed the course of baseball and Edwin Diaz I'm sure that you agree with me right now he's the best reliever in baseball last year yep. 235 batters face. He struck out almost exactly half of them, 118 strikeouts, just 34 hits, uh, adjusted ERA plus of 297, slugging percentage against him last year, 216, on base percentage, 230. That's how dominant he was. Opponents had a lower slugging percentage than on base percentage against him. He had 3.0 F war, by far the highest in the major leagues for any reliever, and so, you know, among the questions about the ripple effects of this, start with this, Jeff. What's the impact on the Mets, who are in this incredibly competitive National League East? Every little bit counts when it comes to the National League East, Buster. Mm-hmm. You've got a team in the Braves that won the World Series two years ago. You've got a team in the Phillies that made the World Series last year, and uh, you've got a team in the Mets that has those sorts of World Series aspirations and frankly understandably so like they their roster top to bottom is absolutely stacked and then you go and look at the other things that have happened this spring brooks Raley, left-handed reliever they acquired from tampa this offseason hurt bryce montez de oka hurt uh sam coonrod hurt and if there was one area where the Mets had some question marks. It was probably their bullpen, but those question marks were almost washed away because Edwin Diaz was so good. And I understand he pitches only one inning at a time. And so, you know, this isn't goose Gossage coming in as the, the fireman and taking over after the seventh inning and plowing through guys. It's a different era. It's a more specialized era, but Edwin Diaz, I think, was seen as a security blanket. And in the way that we know that, Buster, is the Mets gave him $102 million this offseason when no reliever had ever gotten more than uh, 85, 90. Right. Like, I mean, the Mets smashed the salary scale to bring Edwin Diaz back. Um, so. From a baseball sense, if this is a long-term injury, if this is keeping him out for a while, um, it it puts the Mets in a pretty 
desperate spot. Are they closing with David Robertson? Are they closing with Adam Ottavino? Those are two guys who have significant closing experience. So it's certainly a possibility, but neither of them is anything close to Edwin Diaz, nor frankly uh, is really anyone. He was almost in a tier S by himself. And Jeff, in order to plug that ninth inning hole that's there now, and, and you know, we'll get word later today officially what the injury is. I think you'd agree with me. It's pretty clear that it's he's going to be out for a significant period of time. Uh, you're going to have to draw David Robertson or Adam Ottavino out of the seventh inning or the eighth inning, out of yep. those situations that uh, Buck Showalter would prefer to use those guys in. You know, that was, as you say, that was their goal, to, to build the depth of their middle relief, and now they're going to have to draw from that to close that hole in the ninth inning. And it's why this morning, you know, John Harper, SNY, you know, is tweeting out that, well, they almost have to sign Zach Britton today. I guess he's throwing a simulated game for scouts I mean, there there is no good solution to this issue. No, there isn't. Um, if if there is a silver lining here, Buster, and I, I'm not trying to bring silver linings into bad situations, but if there is a silver lining, um, the least expensive thing, both in terms of money and potentially prospect capital to acquire and baseball is relief pitching. Um, it's, it's not expensive because it's so volatile. And that's the thing about Diaz. The reason he got paid as much as he did is because, you know, aside from blips here and there, uh, he is not a volatile person and not a volatile player. Uh, his consistency is what has been so appealing about him and, and so enjoyable if you're a Mets fan. So yeah, the Mets can go out there and find plenty of relievers. Uh, they will find someone from inside the organization, um, uh, sort of like Drew Smith last year, you know, kind of came out of nowhere and, uh, hey, look, this guy's pretty good. Like that, that's just an inevitability in modern baseball that a, a reliever of some manner or variety from inside the organization will step up. It's those moments, though, in October that you're looking for. And I think the Mets have time to go out and get those. I, I don't think they need to panic sign Zach Britton. If Zach Britton's stuff isn't where it needs to be, I don't think the Mets need to sign him just because Buck Showalter trusts him. And yet, maybe Buck Showalter, Buster, wants that security blanket, wants that guy he knows from their time together in Baltimore, that guy he trusts. And, and trust when it comes to a reliever makes an awful lot of difference in the mind of managers. After the injury took place, Mike Trout and Mookie Betts uh, spoke with reporters and, and they both indicated that in their eyes, you shouldn't blame the WBC for Edwin Diaz's injury. They called it a fluke. Uh, Marley Rivera, you know, he referenced, uh, you know, one of our colleagues tweeted this out. People blaming the WBC for injuries is extremely short-sighted and also have no idea how much it means to the players. And I think she's right. Uh, I think Trout and Betts are right. And I also know baseball executives have been in contact with folks around the sport. There's no doubt this is going to have an impact. <laughs> and I don't know how significant it is, but I just know how front offices feel. And, and quite frankly, uh, I, I don't know if you could say that they're wrong either. Right. I about and, this and, that and that's the that's the thing. There, there, there are situations where everybody can be right. 
You yes. know, two things, two things can be true at once. And what it's going to come down to, Buster, is the sway of Major League Baseball versus the sway of front offices. Because, frankly, Major League Baseball is so invested in the World Baseball Classic, especially, you know, before this. I think we can all agree it's been a pretty successful event this year. There's been a lot of enjoyable baseball that's been played. There have been, you know, knock on wood, no major injuries before this. And and you could very easily write this off as what it was, a freak accident, a fluke, something that would never happen in a million parallel universe. Like the this is the one instance in the multiverse. This is this is where the Avengers can go back in time and make everything okay again. Um, except like the opposite. But those sorts of things burrow into our psyches. They they remind us that there is fallibility here. And even though all of us understand that Edwin Diaz could have stepped on a, you know, on a a hole for a drain pipe somewhere and busted his ankle up or um, could have had something in the Mets clubhouse drop on him from above because he was walking by at the wrong time. There's just something about it happening on the field and during a celebration that makes us feel icky. Like he sure wouldn't have been celebrating like he was after a Mets spring training win in Port St. Lucie. And that, that is why Mets fans who... It's the, the kindest way to, to put this. Uh, who live in a perpetual state of self-loathing? Is that fair? <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and that's that, by the way, is not insulting. That's just like that. I, I almost think that's how Mets fans see themselves, too, which is why I'm comfortable saying it. Uh, Mets fans are just like, of course that happened. Uh, of course it happened to our guy, uh, you know. It's it's the Mets. It, it was it was fated. It was inevitable, and it was written in the stars. And uh, it, it's just you know I keep going back to this word. It's just sad. the The whole thing is just sad. Not not only because of what Edwin Diaz has to go through and uh, what the consequences are for the Mets, but because the World Baseball Classic is going to wear it because of this. And I hope as someone who has enjoyed the games, that the strength of the tournament and all of the good things that have happened uh, keep from clubs not saying to their players, we're not going to let you go to this. But you and I both know that's not going to be the case. <laughs> I, well, in I, individual, I, and I, and I, you know, I, I thought about this. Teams put in these contractual clauses that protect the the organizations from injuries that occur outside of the workplace, right. the motorcycle accident, skydiving, basketball. And even though Edwin Diaz was playing baseball, this injury occurred outside of the Mets workplace, which is why, right. you know, moving forward, I think that for some teams, for some front offices, because let's face it, they don't care about like the, the global health of the sport. They want to win this year. Their job yeah. is to build a winner. Jobs will be won and lost based on what happens in 2023. And yep. it's why I think the next time the WBC happens, you're going to have conversations inside organizations like, well, remember what happened with Edwin Diaz, much in the same way that Buster Posey's injury changed the trajectory of that conversation and, and catcher collision rules and Chase Utley's slide changed the, tra the trajectory of the slides into second base because – 
people could focus on one moment and this will be the moment that they will focus on. Yeah, I think the the only counter to that that I have is that this is a matter of power dynamics and the thumb of Rob Manfred is the strongest digit in baseball. Okay. But I would say this, I feel like, and you know, having, I covered the NFL for one year. It feels like the central power in that sport is so much greater than it is in baseball where the Yankees are going to make up their own rules. And if you go back in time (laughs) and think about how many Yankees participate in the WBC. Yeah. It's not high. <laughs> and, and that's and, and I, su- I suppose, Buster, that's that's sort of like a secondary point to this. Aren't we kind of there already a little bit? Don't we live in that world right now? The the perfect example of that is Team USA's rotation. Right. How how many how many better starters? No, like no, no offense to to Lance Lynn, to to Nick Martinez, to all the guys that. USA is thrown out there, but I mean, you can argue that there's uh, a dozen plus starters who are more pedigreed from the United States who would be starting in the WBC, either if they had any interest in going or if their teams weren't saying to them, uh, hey, wink, wink, uh, don't. Yep. Uh, and there's no doubt that, uh, you know, those conversations take place. I mean, Garrett Cole is not there. Justin Verlander's not there. Max Scherzer's not there. Uh, and so it'll, it, it will be interesting to see. It's, it's not, but Buster, it's, it's like, it, it goes even beyond those obvious, like longtime aces though. Um, you know, Max Freed isn't there. Shane Bieber, Dylan Cease, Corbin Burns, uh, Alec Manoa, uh, Shane McClanahan, Zach Gallen, uh, Tristan McKenzie. Like I can go Kevin Gosman. I can go on and on and on. Uh, Carlos Radon, Aaron Nola. Um, right. it, there are, there are so many elite pitchers who already are not in this thing. It was almost, you know, it, as much as we focused on the lineup for the Dominican Republic, like the thing to me that really stood out was the fact that Sandy Alcantara went like the, the guy who is probably regarded as the best pitcher in baseball right now uh, went to the WBC. And that I thought was a victory for the tournament because in the past, it's just not something that we've seen. You're a hundred percent right. And hopefully as you move forward in the WBC, uh, we don't have anything close to what we saw last night. As you say, it just was sad and, and took the air out of the, the competition uh, uh, and probably going forward as well. All right. What else has jumped out at you about the WBC? I've been in Miami the whole time and uh, I feel like I'm, I'm I, I understand this is the furthest thing from like the ancestral birthplace of baseball, but it, it feels like everyone who comes here um, is it's like Hajj. It's like we're going to this this spiritual place where baseball is seen as this beautiful game, our game, Latin America's game. And I, I you know, I, I don't go very often to the ballpark with my family because, uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time 
covering baseball games and I spend a lot of time watching my son's baseball games. And so there's a lot of baseball in the household. And sometimes, you know, the family just needs a break from it. But we went to the Dominican Republic Venezuela game because I wanted them to understand what winter ball is like. And it was the closest thing you will ever find to winter ball. It, it, it you know, it felt like Miami, uh, 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 an American city that already has such an incredible uh, Latin American culture, whether it's Cuban, Venezuelan, um, Puerto Rican, to a lesser extent, Dominican. It felt like Miami and Lone Depot Park had been completely taken over and uh, there was nary a word of English spoken there. Like it was full on Spanish and there were vuvuzelas and there were chants. And when there were two strikes, the Venezuelan fans were standing and, and it looked like they were doing uh, the tomahawk chop, but instead they were just saying ponche, 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 which means strike out uh, in Spanish. And just to see that and experience it here, uh, it, it made me proud in a way that this game that is not regarded by a lot of American fans with the same sort of passion that they do in Latin America, uh, got a chance to see this. And you see it in Japan too, Buster. Like the atmosphere yeah. at, at some of these stadiums, uh, it's, it's unmatched. It's, it's playoff baseball in March, and it is so cool to see. And it's why I hope that the consequences of Edwin Diaz's injuries do not turn out like you and I both fear, because I think the World Baseball Classic, for all of its flaws, for the fact that you have guys having to ramp up way earlier than they typically do, um, I, I think the the things that the tournament brings outweigh those negatives and getting to see it and experience it and feel it really has been a highlight of my spring. Before you go, tell me who's going to win this tournament. Woo. Uh, Venezuela has been playing awfully well, so I don't want to take anything away from them. They went into the group of death and emerged 4-0. Um, Team USA seems like maybe it's finding a little bit of its groove. And when you have Mike Trout and Mookie Betts being Mike Trout and Mookie Betts, you cannot count at team out. But I look at Team Japan and, man, you know, Shohei Otani is doing Shohei Otani things. And uh, you Darvish has looked very good. And uh, boy, oh, boy. If if we get to see Roki Sasaki in the semifinals, I, you know, I wrote a story uh, on Roki Sasaki that uh, I anticipate will be going up in the next couple of days. And if this is a name you have not heard, don't worry. Like there's there's generally no reason for you to have heard it unless you pay attention to to Nippon professional baseball. But Roki Sasaki um, is a 21-year-old who's average. He, he threw 66 pitches uh, against the Czech Republic. He got 22 swings and misses, which is uh, obscene. Uh, but of his 66 pitches, 36 of them were fastballs. Uh, the average buster, the average fastball Roki Sasaki threw was 100 miles per hour. Uh, 
And his split finger fastball uh, is Otani caliber. It's just, I mean, the thing falls off the table and uh, leads to some goofy swings. And this is a pitcher who, uh, at 20 years old last year, on April 10th, went out and threw a 19 strikeout perfect game, 13 consecutive strikeouts at one point, and followed that in his next start with eight consecutive perfect innings and was taken out by the Chibalote Marines, his team, because they wanted to ensure that he did not put himself in a position pitch count wise where he would get injured. And the reason for that is because he is the best young pitcher in the world. Uh, I've talked with some evaluators who argue that he might be the best pitcher in the world period. And the only sad part about this with Roki Sasaki is that major league baseball's international amateur. And, and I say that part tongue in cheek rules uh, apply to signing players from Japan. This was all brought about because guys like Luis Robert uh, and others, uh, uh, particularly Yoan Moncada were signing these enormous deals out of Cuba and MLB wanted to put some restrictions in place that limited the amount of money that players could get until they were 25 years old because somebody like Roki Sasaki or Shohei Otani, if they came over and signed at 23, would theoretically break every salary scale that exists for young players and really open up a Pandora's box for the argument uh, of, of Major League Baseball players. Hey, why do Japanese guys or Cuban guys or, or other guys uh, who play elsewhere get a crack at hundreds of millions of dollars early in their career when we don't? Um, Sasaki does not turn 25 until after the 2026 season. He has said it is my dream to play in Major League Baseball. So, you know, the the part of me that loves watching excellence hopes that he pulls an Otani. And if you don't remember, Otani signed for $2.3 million coming over here when he did because he didn't want to wait until he was 25. On the other hand, a guy like Yoshinobu Yamamoto, who could pitch the finals potentially for Samurai Japan, is going to be turning 25 during the season and will be coming over next year and is going to make boatloads of money. He's won the last two Sawamura Awards, which is the Japanese equivalent of the Cy Young Award. And Man, oh man, uh, he is really good. But when it comes to ceiling, Roki Sasaki is the guy. And when you have a lineup like they do uh, with Muneka Murakami right in the middle of it, another, like this is a golden generation buster of young Japanese players. Um, when, when you're talking Otani, Sasaki, Murakami, Yamamoto, uh, there are some incredible players who are going to be coming over the big leagues over the next half decade. Uh, I just hope that next does not go half decade and is actually sooner. At the beginning of the tournament, I was in Red Sox camp, and uh, we were talking to Alex Cora about uh, you know the, the the various teams, and he just looked at us and said, "Japan's like really good." Like he right from the beginning, he was like, "Just watch Japan. That's the team to beat in his eyes." And I think he he might turn out to be right. And does it not feel like Shohei Otani 
is like the the little leaguer who hit puberty four years before anybody else. I don't know how it happened. You know, for a guy who won the MVP award two years ago, who was in the, you know, the MVP voting again last year, it feels like he got better during the course of the offseason, watching his confidence, you know, watching him compete in that uh, in the early rounds of WBC. You know what? That's actually not a surprise. I remember hearing a couple of years ago from a source that Otani was, was taking batting practice and was working on bat speed and, and was producing these off the charts exit velocities regularly. And that if I was not buying stock in Otani, even though he had been up and down and had Tommy John surgery, uh, I should put every last red cent that I have in on him because he is going to be him and know what turns out he is him he's the best player in the world and when Mike Trout is still in the prime of his career and still performing at the level he does and somebody else is very clearly better than him that that tells you Shohei Otani is a generational player thanks for doing this Jeff my pleasure Buster thanks Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's code baseball. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it. They won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Todd Radom is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. He's a graphic artist whose work can be seen on ball fields all across America, all around the world, or you can go to his website, toddradom.com. Todd, how are you doing this week? Buster, I'm doing well. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, although I mentioned at the top of the show, it's a little chilly. It's been a little chilly here down in, uh, in Florida this week, but you don't want to hear it with all that mountain of snow that uh, you guys have been dealing with up there. All right, let's get to this week's Forgotten Fields. All right, Buster, this is the ballpark where I saw my first Major League Baseball game. It was the home of the New York Mets for 45 seasons. And for one season in 1975, it was the home of the Mets, Yankees, Jets, and Giants. The only time in the history of pro sports that two MLB teams and two NFL teams shared the same venue in the same year. Shea Stadium was a state-of-the-art facility when it opened in 1964, and the World's Fair was right next door. 
anyone who ever went to a game there remembers the planes taking off and landing at nearby LaGuardia Airport. But today, Buster, I'm also thinking about the Iron Triangle, a hodgepodge of chop shops, auto park shacks, and junkyards that defined the neighborhood beyond right field, as well as the stadium's orange foul poles. The ballpark was named for Bill Shea, the powerful New York lawyer who helped deliver National League Baseball back to the Big Apple after the Dodgers and Giants departed in 1958. On April 16, 1964, he consecrated the new structure by pouring out the contents of two small champagne bottles at first base. One contained water from the Harlem River at the exact location where it passed the old polo grounds. The other was from Brooklyn's Gowanus Canal. Shea quipped, you couldn't see the Gowanus from Ebbets Field, but you could always smell it. Four fall classics were played at Shea, 1969, 1973, 1986, and 2000. The first one saw Tom Seaver propel the Miracle Mets to an improbable World Series title. In 1997, Jackie Robinson's uniform number 42 was re retired for every big league team in a ceremony at Shea. I was there. Shea hosted one All-Star game in its first season, and it famously served as the backdrop for a bunch of notable concerts, starting with the Beatles in 1965. We all love hypothetical, Buster, and here's a huge what if. A year after it opened, New York City officials unveiled a $9 million plan to expand Shea Stadium to a whopping 90,000 seats and enclose it with a glass dome, which would have dwarfed Houston's Astrodome. Hmm. Interestingly, however, air conditioning was not part of the plan. The whole thing was dropped when engineers concluded that the, the marshy ground at the stadium sat atop could not handle the added weight. Also of note, when it was originally constructed, Shea's two sets of lower stands were movable via a series of underground tracks in order to accommodate the New York Jets football layout. The battle for the hearts and souls of New York baseball fans shifted back and forth in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s as the fortunes of the Mets and Yankees ebbed and flowed. The Mets in their ballpark declined in the late 70s, just as a renovated Yankee stadium was opening. But new Mets ownership and a Shea makeover made Queens the place to be in the late 80s. In 1993, the team floated a proposal for a billion-dollar domed stadium and amusement complex. Although those plans never panned out, Shea's days were clearly numbered. The ballpark was rapidly deteriorating. During the 2000 World Series, engineers were assigned to monitor the structural integrity of the makeshift centerfield bleachers that enthusiastic fans were putting to the test. Former Mets and Yankee manager Joe Torre later said, the ballpark really didn't wear well. I thought it got old in a hurry. Shea gave way to City Field after the 2008 season. Go to parking lot D. Have a look at the plaques that mark the bases, home plate, and the pitcher's mound. Go to a Mets game at City Field, head over to the Shea Bridge in center, and have a look at the logo that I created that commemorated the final year of the old ballpark. And think about Shea Stadium, which is this week's forgotten field. All right, I'm going to give you four moments in the history of this field. You tell me what, in your eyes, the mo would be the most prominent. The Beatles concert that was played there, okay? Uh, two, the Mets win the World Series in 1969. Three, a moment that goes right as a dagger to your heart, the ball rolling through Bill Buckner's legs. Or four, 
the first game after 9-11, Mike Piazza hitting that home run against the Atlanta Braves. Most prominent moment in the history of that park. It's a tough choice. It's a tough choice, and they're all very different. So real quick, Beatles, probably a half-hour concert because all those songs were really short. So I'm just going to knock that one right out. 69 Mets, the chaos that ensued, and we've all seen pictures of this. Just unbelievable, uh, as I said, an improbable World Series victory. The Buckner play, you're breaking my heart, Buster. How could you do this to me? (laughs) And, of course, the post-9-11 Mike Piazza home run against the Braves, which um, just so meaningful and iconic. Um, I've got to take it to 1969, Buster, because the first World Series championship, and again, one more time, one of the most improbable in the history of Major League Baseball to have been there at that moment would have been pretty unbelievable. What about you? Uh, that's that's where I was going to go too. That's that's pretty cool because you and I both love baseball history, both love history. The fact that we have the same instinct, like that World Series for that team, an expansion team that was last place, last place, last place, all the way, you know, and then and then going from what ninth place or eighth place to first place to win the World Series, pretty pretty darn amazing. All right, let's get to this week's quiz. We bring in Sarah and Taylor. All right, guys, here we go. Twenty twenty three. This marks the 20th anniversary of the Marlins' last World Series win. So here's this week's question. Since then, excluding the shortened 2020 season, what is their average annual win total? Is it A, 74? Is it B, 68? Is it C, 77? Or is it D, 70? The Marlins' win total, excluding the shortened 2020 season, what is their average annual win total? 74, 68, 77, or 70? Sarah, you get to go first because you won last week, okay? You have, uh, you know, it's like playing golf. You get to tee up first on hole number two. Okay, uh, 68. Taylor? I'm going to go with 74. And I'm going to go with 70. Three different answers, Todd. Taylor, you are correct. 74 over their their last over 500 season was 2009. So Taylor strikes this week. Congratulations, sir. Buster uh, sliding his sunglasses on. He is ready to leave the podcast. That's what that means. <laughs> no, I, you know, I it's early. This is like spring training. I'm down. In fact, I don't even know if we're counting these results because it is during spring training. How do we stand there, Todd? Oh, come on. I mean, you know, once the uh, once the ball rolls out on the pitcher's mound, Buster, they're all real games where we are here. So let's go. <laughs> all right, Todd. Thanks for doing this. Uh, always great to talk with you. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Toronto Blue Jays. After a strong finish in 2021, there were high expectations for the Blue Jays in 2022. Toronto went 92-70 and made the playoffs, but then were knocked out of the postseason in the wildcard round by the Mariners. The Jays blowing an 8-1 lead in their final game of the season. Newcomers. Toronto looked to balance its lineup during the winter and landed some left-handed hitting to complement its deep stack of right-handed hitting. The Jays traded a catching prospect for Dalton Varshow, signed center fielder Kevin Kiermeyer, first baseman Brandon Belt, and the Jays also bolstered what was already a good rotation by signing right-handed plow horse Chris Bassett. Gone, but not forgotten. Toronto traded Teoscar Hernandez to the Seattle Mariners. This is a player who drove in 116 runs in 2021. Ross Stripling, incredibly important to the staff last year, moved on as a free agent. The X Factor. 
Jose Barrios was among the most promising young pitchers early in his career, making all-star appearances in 2018 and 2019. And after trading for the right-hander, the Jays invested $131 million in him. But Barrios was one of the AL's worst starting pitchers in 2022, allowing a league-high 100 earned runs, posting a 5.23 ERA. If he can bounce back, Toronto rotation has a chance to be excellent with Kevin Gossman, Alec Manoa, and Bassett, but the Jays desperately need a return to form for Barrios now and into the future. Fault lines. There is no doubt about this. Bo Bichette is among the best hitting shortstops in the big leagues. Last year, he slammed 191 hits, leading the American League in that category for the second consecutive season and piled up 43 homers and 24 doubles with an adjusted OPS plus of 127. But this is also true. Rival evaluators see his defense as a problem for the Jays. Last year, Bichette ranked last among 22 regular shortstops in defense and run save at minus 16. Next to last in that category, Brandon Crawford at minus six. Bichette is 25 years old and has years to affect change, improvement in the way that Dansby Swanson did. The Baseball Tonight Podcast win projection. I've got the Jays at 93 wins, closing the gap on the Yankees. Sarah Lang says 91. Pakoda, 89. Hembo says 90 wins for Toronto. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com, who's speaking to us again from Arizona. Sarah, how you doing? I'm doing great, Buster. It's always great to be here seeing live baseball. Thank you for having me. Well, I can see in your smile, you continue to have a great time at the WBC, a blast. So, you know, I love to put you on the spot. So here's this assignment I have for you at the moment. Okay. Think through this. I've seen your, on your Twitter feed, there's so many great moments. If you could be allowed to have only one memento from this event, if you could have anything, a baseball, a signed jersey, a signed bat, a cap from this event, this WBC, what would it be? I mean, if we're talking physical items, I think the coolest thing has been the alternate Mexico jerseys that were worn on Tuesday night. If anyone didn't see them, Mexico normally wears either red tops or white tops with some red and green but these were basically think like the Phillies baby blues but then a white torso they had light pink baby blue and they were really really cool and Taiwan Walker pitched really well in them which is the fun preview for Phillies fans by the way but I think if we're talking physical items those jerseys were really really cool okay it's a total shock that the physical item was not the jersey of Juan Soto Okay, you could have been specific. I mean, we established yesterday you've had more notes on Juan Soto than any other player. And I I thought that jersey that Shohei Otani signed for the guy who struck him out from Team Czechoslovakia, that would have been pretty cool, too. That was a really, really cool jersey. I also really like the story about Roki Sasaki gifting some of the players some uh, candy, I believe, playing against them. There have been so many cool moments like that, so you make a really good point there. All right, let's play the numbers game. 
Number three. Number three is 10. So speaking of the WBC, on Team Cuba, Alfredo Desbane, who I mentioned a couple weeks ago, is the all-time WBC home run leader. He hasn't homer yet this tournament, but he did get yet another hit in Cuba's win over Australia to clinch a trip to Miami to play in the semifinals. He has now gotten a hit in 10 straight WBC games. That goes back to 2017. That's tied with Robinson Cano for the second longest hitting streak in WBC history. Cuban legend Frederick Zepeda had a 13-game hitting streak. So Desfane, if he continues, will get close to that. Number two. Number two is 19. This one isn't super numerical, but I do have a stat for it. So Jacob Steinmetz of Team Israel on Tuesday night was 19 years and 238 days old. That is the fourth youngest pitcher to start a WBC game. Yes, he gave up a run, but he went an inning in the third. He struck out Manny Machado, Jeremy Pena, and Gary Sanchez. He is in the Diamondbacks organization, but is not picked above the Arizona Complex League. And by the way, he had about a seven ERA there last year. So to come in and on this stage, strike out those guys, that's what this tournament is all about. And the look on his face was so, so cool. Number one. Number one is five. So one of the things I have loved about seeing the WBC up close is really getting to know some new favorite players who I didn't know much about before the last week. And one of those is Great Britain right fielder Chavez Young. So Great Britain was eliminated. They won't be moving on. But he had five stolen bases in their four games, including three in a game and the only stolen base of home in WBC history. His five slum bases are tied for the most in WBC history in a career with Javi Baez, Tsuyoshi Nishioka, Jimmy Rollins, and Ishiro Suzuki. By the way, he is in the Pirates organization, and he was really good over their four games. I wonder if that might help him see the majors at some point this year. All right, before you go, we just got done talking to our friend Todd Radom, who presented the forgotten field of this week, and that would be Shea Stadium. And I gave him this question. Again, I like to put you in a spot where it's impossible, okay? To me, the four most prominent events in the history of Shea Stadium. One, the Mets winning the World Series, 1969, okay? The ball going through Buckner's legs, 1986. In 2001, the first game after 9-11, Mike Piazza hit a home run, and the Beatles held a concert at Shea Stadium. So Sarah, if you could go back in time and go to one of those events, which one would you, where would you want to be? Oh my goodness. I was waiting for you to say the Beatles. I mean, obviously the baseball moments being there for the Mets winning the World Series or the Buckner moment would be really cool. But you know what? I'm 
mentioned Great Britain, and because of Great Britain, they played some Beatles songs as walk-up music here at Chase Field this week. And one of those <laughs> songs was Paperback Writer, which is the most amazing walk-up song I've ever heard. It's not a song you think of in a ballpark. So with that on my mind, I might go with the Beatles coming to the U.S. and playing at Chase Stadium. Awesome. Which of the four Beatles was your favorite, Sarah? Ringo. I was a Ringo fan. Really? Yeah. My dad was always like, what are you doing? But I was always team Ringo. Rooting for the underdog as always. Sarah, thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Buster. At the Yankees camp on Wednesday, owner Hal Steinbrenner spoke with the reporters. And in the midst of that, I asked him about his impressions of Anthony Volpe. And he brought up the fact that he actually has talked to Aaron Judge and other players about Volpe. Give a listen to this. Your interactions with Volpe, what's been your, what have your impressions been? Yeah, I mean, most of the interactions have been just saying hi in passing. I haven't, I haven't gotten to know him as well as I probably should. Um, but uh, look, he's, he's a great kid. And again, I've heard from other players, including Judge, that he conducts himself in a, in a very professional way for somebody his age. Uh, and that's that's good because he's going to need all that, right, to play where we play. How did that, I'm curious, how did that come up, Volpe, come up in your conversation with Judge? Did you ask him or did he just bring I, it up? I asked Judge, uh, Judge and I, you know, we've got a good relationship. I, I asked him about a, a lot of things. I mean, we're getting ready to look at some renovations of the stadium. He's involved with that. So, um, but yes, I, I asked him about different players and obviously that's going to be, that's going to be one of the topics, among others. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher tweets for a Thursday. Stephen Shulman at Pro Bono Dude writes in Buster. I also love Lars Newt Bar. We had the Reggie Bar, so why hasn't anyone developed the Lars Newt Bar? Caramel, of course, topped with a pinch of pepper from the grinder. That would be fantastic. <laughs> I think, you know, as Lars establishes himself as a big leaguer, maybe as he becomes a star, maybe we'll have that, especially in a, in a city like St. Louis where the, the fans get around their players, support their players in the way that they do. I'm sure uh, the marketing team is, is all over it in St. Louis. Uh, Justin Simmons at Justin Lance Sim one writes in Hey Buster, I heard you mention the rise in average player salary. However, you've also said that the average player is losing out relative to top earners. Do you have any yep. data that shows whether the median median salary has gone up or down? No, uh, don't have uh, data re that reflects all the signings of this offseason. There's no doubt that the middle class this offseason did great. You know what I talked a lot about during the uh, the work stoppage last year was how the middle class had been impacted. Well, it's clear that those guys were pulled up. You saw uh, journeyman players getting salaries of seven, eight million dollars. You know, guys, number four, number five starters and getting contracts, 12, 13 million dollars. I thought Sean Manaya, you did not have a good year with the Padres last year, was a great example of this. Get two years and $25 million from the Giants. You know, good for him. I do think the middle class is doing better. The last one for today, Nolan Scad at Nolan Scad writes, and how accurate historically have Pakoda projections been? Does anyone go back and check their work? Uh, sure. And like anybody else's predictions, some of them are off base and they don't work out. Uh, but I think everybody understands the data that uh, that those projections are rooted in, which is why everyone pays attention to it. You talk to uh, general managers around the sport. You talk to assistant general managers. 
They're well aware of what the Pakoda projections are, and they take them seriously. Alrighty, that does it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter as you're watching WBC action this weekend. We'll be back on Monday, Buster, or Tuesday? We'll be back on Monday. Uh, right. I'll be back in Montana. But uh, yeah, we, we had a good week of shows this week. That's it for today. My thanks today to Jeff Passan and to Todd Radom and to Sarah Langs, to Bruce, to Sarah, to Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.